I think it's been a good day so far. We appreciate so much for being here. Thank you. I'm Evan Smith, the Editor-in-Chief and CEO of the Tribune. And it's my pleasure to introduce the next program. I will not be conducting the interview, but I do have the honor and the pleasure of introducing our next uh, speaker and the next moderator. This is a conversation with U.S. Senator John Cornyn, moderated by Karen Tumulty of the Washington Post, one of the great political journalists in the country, a native of San Antonio and a graduate of this university. So it's nice to have her back, and uh, she is a real expert on Texas by virtue of her roots, and so the right person to conduct such an interview. But let me first introduce Senator Cornyn. I'll introduce them back-to-back and then have them both come out on stage together. Senator John Cornyn, a senior United States senator from Texas, first elected in 2002, re-elected in 2008. He is running for, I mean, pardon me, uh, yes, 2008. He is running for a third full term by the November ballot this year. In the 103rd Congress, he serves on the Finance and Judiciary Committees, and he's the minority whip, so chosen by his fellow Republicans. He's been a member of his party's leadership since 2006. Before his arrival in Washington, Senator Cornyn had been Texas Attorney General, a Texas Supreme Court Justice, and a district judge. Born in Houston, raised in San Antonio, he has an undergraduate degree from Trinity University, a law degree from St. Mary's University, and a Master's of Law degree from the University of Virginia. Interviewing Senator Cornyn this morning will be Karen Tumulty, national political correspondent for the Washington Post. Prior to her arrival at the paper in 2010, she'd had the same title at Time, where she'd spent a total of 15 years, including a stint as the magazine's White House correspondent. Before that, she logged 14 years at the Los Angeles Times. She began her journalism career at the now-defunct San Antonio Light, in the city where she was born and raised. As I said, she has an undergraduate degree from the University of Texas at Austin, as well as an MBA from Harvard University. Please join me in welcoming Senator John Cornyn and Karen Tumulty. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is great. Thanks, Appreciate it. I think I'm over here. Yes, I believe so. So right. the microphones are on. Um, yes, we do now have an all San Antonio panel sitting up here, so I'm reserving a little bit of time at the end for an in-depth discussion of where to find the best puffy tacos. <laughs> um, so I wanted to start out. We're sitting here at a moment when President Obama's approval rating is right around 40%, which sounds really, really terrible until you consider the fact that that's four times as high as Congress's. Um, you, there are political scientists who have actually charted voting records who will tell you that you have to go back to the 1890s to find any period in our history that is even close to comparable for this one in terms of the two parties in Congress having so little that they can agree on. So I thought that I would ask you a question that somebody, I don't know, it, Jenny, are you by any chance, a, a young woman I met last night uh, asked me a question that I would like to ask you, which is, is there anything that can be done to, as President Obama talked about in the 2012 campaign, break this fever? Well, Karen, now I'm even more depressed than I was when I came here. With, uh, well, you're, you know, there's, there is a, a lot to, to say about this, but the, the, the basic uh, answer is I agree that Congress is dysfunctional. And, but largely it's the Senate because the House has passed uh, over 380 pieces of legislation that have died in the Senate. 
And uh, Senator Reid, as the majority leader, as you know, has extraordinary power. He has the only ability in the Senate to actually schedule legislation for votes or to allow amendments on legislation. So we've been largely relegated to, uh, to uh, uh, show votes on, in anticipation of the election now some 45 days from now and not addressing so many of the, of the big problems that do confront our country. Uh, I do think that uh, there is an important difference between what people say and what people do. And uh, President Obama has always talked about this, uh, working together in a bipartisan way. But we haven't seen a lot of it um, after the first two years where Democrats controlled the House, the Senate, and the White House and pushed through uh, the Affordable Care Act, Dodd-Frank, uh, almost trillion dollars in stimulus and the like. Can we, can we fix this? Um, yes, we can. Uh, Senator uh, Mitch McConnell, who's now the, the Republican leader in the Senate, has made abundantly clear that as a traditionalist, he thinks the Senate ought to actually function and that senators ought to be able to offer legislation and get votes on it. Uh, not a, just a quaint view. That's the way we've been doing it for 225 or so years, or maybe 230 years. So uh, I think if we restore the Senate to its traditional role as a functioning body where you bring the uh, largest issues that confront our country and you debate them and you actually vote on them, that we will be able to, uh, that not only will our approval rating go up, but that people will have a much greater satisfaction. I'm not just talking about the American people, I'm talking about members who work there. Uh, because right now, whether you're the majority or you're the minority, as I am, uh, it's, it's a pretty miserable experience. And, you know, we've, ha we've now had three presidents in a row campaign on this idea that they were going to fix Washington, that they were going to somehow come up with, you know, the, the magic beans where people would come together in the middle. And in each case, we have seen the polarization increase on their watch. So, I mean, is the problem here the people who get elected, or is it the people who are the voters, the people who are electing them? Because you don't get rewarded in our current political system for, you know, getting stuff done. Well, I think there's tremendous appetite for that. As you and I were talking earlier, just my experience working with Henry Cuellar uh, from Laredo, a Democrat, on uh, an immigration solution, at least to the very small but, but important issue of how do we deal with the unaccompanied minors coming from Central America was pretty eye-opening to me. People didn't really care so much what the details were, but they were very appreciative that actually people were trying to get something done. But I think what it takes is it takes presidential leadership. Um, last time we had a balanced budget was uh, under Bill Clinton when Republicans controlled the House and the Senate. Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan famously extended the life of Social Security by working together. But now it seems like today that uh, that's the president is unwilling to do that and provide political cover for his own party. I mean, Republicans have our own challenges, too, that maybe we'll talk about. But, uh, but, uh, but it really does take presidential leadership because some of the really important things can only be done with bipartisan uh, support because they are so politically risky that neither party can do them all by themselves. And so... Uh, after the president's bipartisan fiscal commission, the Simpson-Bowles Commission, reported in December 2010, as you know, that had bipartisan support for a plan to deal with the 
with spending and our debt. And I thought this is a perfect uh, sort of a Bill Clinton, Ronald Reagan moment where we could actually come together and, and do something important for our country. And the president walked away from it. Um, so, uh, but I think, you know, we, we can't give up. I mean, this is, a, the government is, we are the government. Uh, and it's not just a bunch of people that do this uh, and we're unconnected from it. That's why these primaries in this general election 45 days from now is so important because the American people will set the direction of, uh, of, the, of the, their government by who they select to lead them. And if we could back up just a little bit to your bill with Congressman Cuellar to deal with the unaccompanied minors at the border, uh, I think a lot of people were impressed because you, you know, both of you exposed yourselves a little bit. It was probably not as hard line as people in, some people in your party would like to see in terms of sending them all back. Uh, and it was, you know, not as, I mean, it, it, it speeds up the, the ju judicial processes, which a lot of Democrats don't necessarily want to see either. Where do things stand on that bill right now? And, and what, is, what is the answer to this? Or is the problem so solving itself down there? Well, the numbers seem to have come down some, but no, the problem is not solved. And uh, I think a lot of this is seasonal because, of course, when the numbers started to dip, it was August. Uh, Governor Perry had deployed, uh, start, begun to deploy National Guard troops to at least back up Border Patrol and others. Uh, and I think there was more attention given to the fact that uh, this is a, a crisis and, and, and something needed to be done. But we, had to, we weren't given an opportunity in the Senate to vote on the bill, uh, and so it's uh, left undone. It's bizarre to me that the, the President requested $3.7 billion for this humanitarian crisis. Uh, the House passed legislation, which, again, is, wasn't perfect, but it, they at least acted, and then the Senate did nothing. And uh, now it's as if this crisis has gone away. The problem still exists, and we should be dealing with it. And the immigration issue is always a, a good entry point to talk about some of the demographic challenges that, that your party faces now. Um, you know, the Republican Party is in danger. A, a lot of senior Republicans have made the point of essentially becoming a you know, party of white guys. Uh, so what, how do you see moving forward? You had mentioned that you've got some, some creative outreach going. How does the party solve this problem? Well, Texas is ground zero, uh, in my view, because, as you know, there's a lot of folks from Organizing for America, the president's field staff from his 2012 election that have moved here in an effort to, quote, turn Texas blue, while there's a, was a countervailing effort to keep Texas red that uh, my, my, uh, my uh, campaign and other Republicans are leading as well. But I think you're exactly right. The demographics are pretty clear. Uh, not only is Texas 38% Hispanic, but we have large Vietnamese American populations, uh, Indian American, and others that I think would be open to our, um, our message of the fr you know, promoting the free enterprise system and the American dream uh, if we would just show up and we would, we would tell them and, and we would listen to them and invite them into our, uh, to participate with us. Uh, so I do think it's very important. As, as you know, I've uh, got... Uh, let me see, I guess we got four, four different, or five different uh, languages up on our website. We have English, Spanish, Vietnamese, Chinese, and we're working on Hindi. Um, I was the co-founder of the U.S. India Caucus in the Senate with Hillary Clinton, 
So as the request of a lot of my, uh, some of my constituents in the Dallas Indian American Chamber, so I have very good relationships there. And I just think that's the kind of things that Republicans need to do because Texas is evolving with the people moving here and Republicans have to evolve with it and to be more welcoming because if we get 27% of the uh, Hispanic vote and or 25% of the Asian American vote, both of which Mitt Romney got nationally, right. we can't win. And that means uh, our friends across the aisle, the Democrats, win by default. Well, so when in the last midterm election, when you were head of the campaign arm for the Republican Party, the, the NRSC, the senatorial campaign arm, uh, you guys picked up six seats. Six is kind of the magic number now, too. Yeah. And uh, last I saw, I believe this was on Politico, you have given $350,000. You've transferred from your own campaign funds. You've raised a million dollars out there, and you have pledged another 100000 toward toward this effort. So I guess we can say that you're all in. And I am. So, and so, but as, but as, as, as much as Republicans have been doing, it's amazing that if you... If you um, see what Democrats and their candidates and the super PAC supporting Democrats are doing nationally, they're actually um, outraising and outspending Republican candidates. So it's, uh, it's expensive, but the stakes couldn't be higher. So I'm doing everything I know how to do to, to change the management in Washington, at least in the United States Senate after this next election. Well, so where are you going to be on election night besides watching your own... Uh well, I'll be, uh, I'll be here because, as you point out, I'm running for re-election, uh, and I'm very keenly interested in what happens uh, to, uh, here in Texas, obviously. But I will be uh, checking the returns in places like West Virginia, South Dakota, Montana, Alaska, Arkansas, Louisiana, North Carolina, Colorado, Michigan, just to, say, just to mention a few places. But so can you sort of give us a, like, insider's pro tip here. You know, say it's early in the evening and you're watching the returns and trying to figure out is there a wave out there? How everybody thinks it's going to be a good night for Republicans. How good of a night is it going to be? Are there like one or two races that you really think are going to be the, you know, if if we win this one, all the dominoes fall or what what well, I do think there's a, a, a chance that there will be a wave election. As you know, right now, I think the real clear politics average of public polls, um, if the election were held today, we'd pick up seven seats, and so we need six to, to, re, to gain the majority. Uh, so I guess we'd start on the East Coast. North Carolina would probably be, under, uh, with, in response to your question, one of the first ones where we'd have an indication, although that's a very competitive race between the Speaker of the North Carolina House and the incumbent, Kay Hagan. And a libertarian picking up like 6 and 7% in the well, polls. Well, some, some, uh, some of the third-party candidates uh, could well have an impact on those elections or whether there's a runoff. Uh, Georgia will also be a, a very uh, hard-fought race, and so those will likely be some of the early ones. But as, as you know, some of them, like uh, Louisiana, we likely won't find, the res uh, the, uh, the, find out what the result of that is until December because they have the so-called open or jungle primary, where the top two candidates, if neither one gets 50% plus one, go into the runoff. So um, this could be a fascinating race. But I, I think some of them that are the closest now that really, to me, are going to be the most fascinating are like 
the Corey Gardner, uh, Mark Udall race in, in Colorado, which is right uh, now neck and neck. In um, Minnesota, Al Franken and Mike McFadden. Um, we've got good candidates this year uh, in literally all of these races, so they're very competitive. And is there anybody out there, you know, besides the kind of national candidates that, that you know, are getting a lot of attention who, when you look at this man or this woman, you think, you know, this is, the, this is somebody who really sort of gets it, who's kind of the voice of the future. Is there anybody out there that we should be paying attention to, maybe who isn't even going to win on election night, but who? Well, one of the things I'm particularly pleased at is we could well double the number of Republican women in the United States Senate, well, great candidates. But, you know, there, we saw after the 2010 election, people like Marco Rubio and Rand Paul sort of capture the public attention and imagination. And uh, um, I think uh, first things first, they've got to win their race to the Senate beforehand uh, before they become thrust into that national stage. Uh, I think so much of this is now, although it's a national election in the sense that, that I think it's a referendum to some extent on the president's policies and his low approval rating, although it's higher as con than Congress, as you point out, is really a dead weight on many Democratic incumbents who voted for those policies 95, 96, 97 percent of the time. And, but these really are state-by-state -state races, but basically a... I think you will see probably a repudiation of the kind of dysfunction you started this uh, out with that people just find so distasteful, whether you're Republican or Democrat or Independent. Why is it that Congress can't actually function and get anything done? Nobody ever gets everything they want done. Um, quick story, uh, Mike Enzi, who's from uh, Wyoming, as you know, one of the most conservative members of the Senate. When I got to the Senate, he was working on the health Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee with Teddy Kennedy, the liberal lion of the Senate. And they worked famously together and came up with the uh, produced legislation. And I said, Mike, how is it that you're working with Teddy Kennedy and you actually are able to find a basis for common ground and agreement? He said, it's easy. It's the 80-20 rule. He said, the 80% we agree on, we do. And the 20% we can't agree on, that we leave and fight on that basis another day. That is the practical, I think, solution to legislative gridlock because obviously no one gets everything they want and trying to find common ground where you can move forward uh, in, is uh, the way to do it. So I think, I think we, we see a, a pathway forward. So assuming Senator McConnell wins his race and that you guys pick up these six seats and that you move into January as the majority leader and majority whip of the United States Senate. I like the way that sounds. <laughs> okay, we'll do a thought experiment. Um, are there any issues that people, because again, on the one hand, yes, you know, Mitch McConnell is a great institutionalist. He tells, you know, stories going back to his days as a Senate staffer and watching the signing of the Civil Rights Bill. But on the other hand, he is seen as a pretty extreme partisan that he's always run very negative campaigns. I mean, that's one of the reasons he keeps winning. Um, so are there any issues that people could take a look at and really determine whether there, there is going to be common ground? I mean, like people talk about entitlement reform, and it's always like, yeah, we'll get to that next year. Right, right. Well, there's some 
there's some very important things we have to get done. Um, believe it or not, the United States Congress hasn't passed a budget since 2009. It's just outrageous. There's no excuse for that. Uh, but it hadn't happened. That's obviously where you set the spending caps and where you produce the, uh, the reconciliation instructions that allow you to do other spending and uh, um, deal with tax issues potentially. So we need to do that, that's for sure. There's some other stuff that just is, seems so obvious, like the Keystone XL pipeline, that we now had six years since they've applied for this pipeline that's supported by broad bipartisan um, uh, uh, groups and uh, just can't seem to get done because it's a, uh, it's a ideological issue as opposed to uh, uh, actually something that we can deal with on a practical basis. And then, you know, I think there is a, Health care hadn't, uh, the Affordable Care Act hadn't exactly turned out the way that people had hoped, though the, the people who were its advocates. I was a skeptic, as you may have noticed, and I didn't think it would work. I mean, why you would go in to the health care field and try to, and be so arrogant as to think you could basically do, uh, take command of one-sixth of the economy, and you could, from Washington, D.C., create a one-size-fits-all solution um, that, but ironically, rather than make health care more affordable, it's made it more expensive. But and you're not going to repeal it. That's well, not going to well, happen. Well, so. while President Obama is in office uh, for two more years, you're, you're probably right. You are right. So, so what are the two or three fixes that you think are important that could sort of keep the law, again, I mean, acknowledging you can't repeal it? Mm -hmm. Well, what people, I think, want today. They, they want physical security and certainly the national security issues that we're dealing with in the news and in Washington are important. They want economic security. They want jobs. They want health care security. But uh, right now they have none of those. And so on the health care front, I think what we need to do is uh, uh, turn the decision making back over to uh, consumers rather than have government say what you need and what you must buy, not because you, you particularly want it or need it, but because the system needs you to subsidize somebody else within the system. And to create more transparency and individual choice, which will create a market. We've seen this in the, um, in the Medicare Part D, the prescription drug program, where people actually have private vendors that compete uh, for consumer support. And what always happens when you have a market is uh, they compete and provide a better service and indeed a lower price than was additionally predicted by the government. It actually, it's 40% or roughly under what uh, it was predicted to cost. So, uh, again, that was not a perfect, um, a perfect uh, piece of legislation, and there were some problems that, uh, that I would do, handle differently today. But in terms of creating a market and individual choice for consumers and bringing down the cost, making it more affordable and more accessible, while continuing the safety net programs like Medicaid and improving those so they actually work. And uh, instead of robbing from Medicare, which uh, the Affordable Care Act did in order to subsidize, it took from one entitlement program and created a new entitlement program, uh, heading just exactly in the wrong way. So there's some individual things that we can do as well, like repeal the medical device tax, which is killing innovation in the medical device fields. And a lot of support for that on both sides of the aisle. There, there certainly are. Things like uh, repealing the Independent Payment Advisory Board, or IPAB, this uh, took the decisions out of the hand of Congress in terms of what, what medical procedures to actually pay for and uh, created a, a, a 
panel of bureaucrats to do it that are not accountable to uh, anybody, including the voters. So there's a number of things we, we can do. Again, uh, what sort of uh, cooperation we get, and we're going to have to get bipartisan cooperation. Uh, I think we can make some progress. Hopefully the president will decide to work with us, uh, since I don't think it's quite turned out the way he thought it would either. Well, you, you mentioned that President Obama only has two more years in office, uh, then, and we're already into 2016 in my business. Um, Texas appears like it's going to have uh, an embarrassment of wealth when it comes to uh, 2016 candidates. And uh, last night we discovered that uh, George P. Bush was unwilling to committing to endorsing his own father if he runs. What uh, do you figure you're going to endorse at some point? Assuming, assuming that we have the current governor of Texas, the current junior senator of Texas, and a Bush. Uh, do you figure you'll be endorsing at some point? And what, what's this going to be like for people in Texas well, in Karen, your position? My, my experience with endorsements from uh, public officials is that they don't, they don't count for anything. <laughs> yes, that was, that, they, they, they did. Uh, they don't produce drop. a single additional vote. You it, managed to get through that primary without <laughs> one big one. Yes, that's true. <laughs> but uh, I, I agree we're going to have a number of, uh, of, of candidates running, a number of governors, people who've actually run something. I think maybe the, the experience that we've seen with President Obama, who moved very quickly through the Senate without actually serving a full term as a senator, then running for president, and the uh, sort of the, the, the deficit in his own resume when it came to actually running a state like governors do, is something that uh, voters will weigh in their mind. But we've got a number of, of governors as well. Uh, we have some senators. I'm confident Marco Rubio and uh, Rand Paul are taking a hard look at but, this. But you think that somebody who is still in his first term in the United States Senate may not have the ideal resume for... I, th I think they're going to have a, a tougher time because of uh, the, the Obama experience. Right. And so, but, so how, though, how awkward is it going to be with... Uh, not awkward at all. We're going to, if we're, uh, as, as er, one of your earlier questions uh, asked, if we are in the majority, we're going to have our plate full. And while I understand this, the, uh, the media likes to speculate on 2016 and people are fascinated by that, I just, uh, I think we've got some important things to do uh, 45 days from now and for the next two years leading up to 2016. My own view is that if Republicans don't demonstrate that we can responsibly govern, then that's going to make it much harder for us to win the White House in 2016. Because my belief is that people have seen the president's policies and say, well, you know, we had high hopes, but it hadn't quite turned out the way we, we, we thought. Uh, maybe, I'll listen, maybe I'll listen to what the Republicans, uh, maybe I'll give them a chance. And if we don't uh, live up to that and take advantage of the opportunity to responsibly govern, then I think it's going to be much harder for any Republican to win in 2016. Well, and then people, back to the current election, uh, people thought it was going to be, until a few weeks ago, thought that this was going to be an almost singularly domestically focused election. Mm. Now, of course, the, the threat from ISIS is, you know, it seems to have taken up, you know, everyone's attention because sure. it is. You, on the one hand, were pretty early out there saying that you were going to support the president's request. But on the other hand, you have 
really expressed some criticism of his leadership. I believe the phrase that one disturbingly aloof. Um, where do you think all this is leading? And do you think we're talking about boots on the ground? Well, I, I do believe that it was a mistake for uh, President Obama to not negotiate a bilateral security or status of forces agreement that would have left a small residual footprint of American and NATO troops in Iraq uh, after the successful uh, in, end of uh, most of what we were fighting for over there after the surge uh, was successful and, um, and we, we had democratically elected governments there. But having pulled the, pulled the plug there, uh, obviously things uh, descended into this sectarian war that's now essentially spread to Syria. Uh, Syria had its own civil war, but now the border basically between Syria and Iraq has is, is been erased. And you have this uh, radically um, barbaric uh, Islamist group known as ISIL that is a, a real serious threat. Uh, I think there's bipartisan awareness of that. What we keep waiting for is for the president to come up with a plan. He's commander of chief, as he likes to remind us from time to time. And the responsibility of coming up with a plan together with your military leadership is, is primarily the commander in chief's responsibility. 535 members of Congress can't lead that effort. It's got to come from the president. And so far, um, any, everything he's proposed, I think there's deep skepticism whether it, number one, represents the kind of broad strategy we need, and, uh, and secondly, whether it will work. Now, I'm skeptical that uh, arming and equipping Syrian rebels uh, is going to be adequate to deal with the problem in Syria or with ISIL generally, but I was willing to give the president uh, the chance to demonstrate that, um, that it could succeed. Uh, we're going to be able to revisit that again on December the 11th, as you know. It was very short-term authorization. But what we need is a much broader, more fulsome debate in Congress, which is, of course, the only body under the Constitution that can actually declare war. And Secretary Kerry refusing to use those words, I think, is completely uh, disingenuous. You know, when, American, when America uh, engages in a, in a fight against a threat like ISIL, that is a war. And we ought to call it that. The president ought to ask for Congress to pass an authorization uh, to get bipartisan support for his strategy, assuming he can present a strategy that uh, people have confidence has a reasonable chance of winning. Because only by doing that, I think, will he be able then to convince the American people more broadly that this is a serious threat. And as much as we don't want to engage, uh, we have no alternative because there is no substitute for American leadership on matters uh, like this. Uh, but again, he seems to um, want to try to go it alone, uh, which means he is going to be alone responsible for the outcome. And as we know from uh, the last 13 years or so, uh, but, that's, it's, it's going to be bumpy. But, now, but there are people, including people in Congress, who are uh, both Democrats and Republicans will argue that Congress hasn't exactly lived up to its responsibility here either. That, you know, ironically enough, I've, we've been asking you why they don't get things done. Some people say you acted too quickly on this, but you're saying in December you're going to have a chance for a sort of fuller and, and something that could sort of bring a clearer sense of what our national purpose is. Well, I wish we had done it um, this week, or yeah, I guess this week, because um, we, just, we just adjourned uh, on Thursday night. 
uh, but adjourned for 45 days now, 47 days at the time right. before the election. There's no reason why Congress should be out of session. Yeah. We a need lot to, of people, a lot need of to be there working that. and doing just this. But again, to my earlier point that only Senator Reid has the authority to decide what our agenda is and when we're in session. Well, John Boehner did, too. He was on that. He passed, the, the House did, uh, they passed the only thing they know, knew would pass in the Senate, which was a continuing resolution to December the 11th, along with this authorization, not for uh, war, but for uh, this uh, small uh, component of it, which is to arm and train Syrian rebels. But I hope, having not done it this week, we will do it when we get back after the election, because I think the American people deserve it, and our men and women who are serving in harm's way deserve to know that they have the support of the American people more broadly. And also what they're trying to accomplish. Exactly. Precisely. Well, I believe we have, what, about 10 minutes left. Uh, so if we, and, you know, I cannot, yes, I can if I ha hold my hand up. If, uh, if we have anybody in the audience who would like to ask questions, now is the time. It's hard to see, hard to see in the lights, but. Uh... Is this okay. Yes. Uh, oh. Thank you. Oh, sorry. And then we'll, why don't we, okay. Uh, Senator Corn, my name is Hasib Abdullah. I am a citizen here in Austin. I had a question. Um, Congress just passed audit the Fed, what bipartisan support. I think a majority of Democrats signed off on it. So it was a huge bipartisan-supported bill. How come the Senate still can't pass that? And if you blame it on one or two people, isn't it the failure of the senators, both Republican and Democrats, to allow one or two people to have that much power in the Senate? Thank you. Well, I'm a, I am a co-sponsor of the audit the Fed bill. If you look at how much money the, uh, the Federal Reserve has uh, basically borrowed and has on its balance sheet, which it is now in the process of reducing the, uh, the, 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 the debt, basically, that they're buying, and uh, eventually interest rates will have to go back up. I just think it's too much authority without adequate transparency. And uh, so I think the American people deserve to know, and Congress deserves to know, how the, the Fed is, is operating, because it really is kind of a secret society within the U.S. government. Um, but again, I think this is, as I was telling Karen earlier, I think part of the problem is that we have not had the Senate functioning uh, in a way that it has traditionally functioned to take legislation, uh, whether it's audit the Fed bill or another bill on the floor that somebody can offer an amendment, and then get a vote on that as part of a, a, a legislative process. So it's, uh, it's part of the dysfunction now. But I assure you that uh, if, if uh, Republicans win the majority in the United States Senate and hold the House, which I'm confident we will, then we will vote on uh, and audit the Fed bill uh, very, very soon uh, after January. And yes. Okay, good. Sorry. <laughs> yes, uh, Senator, when uh, Karen asked you the question about dis dysfunction in the U.S. Congress, your response was, oh, well, it's all Obama's fault. There's just this lack of presidential leadership. Now, you that wasn't my complete answer, but that was part of it. Well, okay, that was that, that was what I heard. He blamed Harry uh, Reid too. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that uh, many Americans are hungry for some real honesty. And isn't it time for the Republican leadership, of which you're part, to acknowledge its role? And I'd like to just mention a couple of examples. One, um, the um, the shutting down of um, the U.S. government in order to make a score a political point. Uh, led by Senator Cruz, which you very much supported, which cost the American taxpayer and added $23 billion, um, not to mention um, 
and not to mention nearly shutting down, um, uh, well, causing, excuse me, I should say, causing a financial global crisis a few years ago with your unwillingness to raise the debt ceiling. But can you, can you amplify a little more? What role do you think the Republicans have in, uh, in dysfunction in Washington? Well, I think we've certainly made our contribution, uh, and you pointed out one of them. Uh, I, by the way, did not support the, uh, the defund Obamacare effort, not because I, don't, I, I love Obamacare. I don't. I think it should be repealed and replaced, uh, but because I didn't think the tactic that the people who advocated that would work. And Senator indeed, Cruz. Among others. And uh, so it was a disagreement over tactics, and I think even those who supported that effort have now, uh, in retrospect, uh, have, uh, have given this some thought and realized that it didn't turn out so well. Uh, so I think, I think what people want is for, uh, for the government to function, uh, not for people to th- uh, throw temper tantrums and say, we're not going to cooperate, we're not going to play ball. And to me, the stakes, as high as they were back then a year ago, they're going to be even higher for Republicans uh, going forward, as I mentioned, to show that we can responsibly govern. And again, uh, part of the problem we had a year ago is some outside groups who basically said, we demand you vote to defund Obamacare, even though we know it could result in a shutdown. And if you don't, then we're going to score this in our, uh, in our voting scorecard, and you'll be having to deal with this in a, in a primary if you're a member of a Congress. That would be your former colleague, Senator DeMent. Yes, <laughs> among among others, it was it was a bad idea, and it and it we, it shouldn't have happened. So hopefully we can learn from that. We can all learn from that. Uh, and is there more than enough blame to go around? Sure, there is. But uh, uh, I do believe that uh, we have to do better. We can do better, and I think that means working together. Again, I, as I was mentioning to Karen backstage, I said I was really kind of surprised, but actually glad when. I saw the reaction when uh, Henry Cuellar and I worked together trying to address the unaccompanied minor crisis at the border. People, as I, again, they didn't necessarily care too much about what the specifics were, but they just liked to see the fact that people were willing to work together in a bicameral and bipartisan way, and how, that's what we need to do. And how much of it is that people in Congress don't know each other anymore, that they, you know, that, that they are not the sort of informal... I mean, committees don't even work anymore. Right. And that's a mistake. Um, Committees need to work. They need to function so people have an opportunity to represent their constituents and offer legislation, get votes in committees. Um, There there are some areas that I think, you know, we can can work uh, together on. I personally believe we have to act on immigration reform. Um, But there's some notable areas beyond just this uh, immigration issue that Henry and I worked on. I've worked with Pat Leahy since I got to the Congress on freedom of information and open government issues. One of the most conservative Republicans and one of the most liberal Democrats coming together on the public's right to know. Um, and I think uh, there certainly are other areas that we can work constructively together. You may have, I know you've noticed, but uh, criminal justice reform is something that uh, where, you, where you find the left and the right coming together and saying you can't just warehouse people and you can't just forget about them once they've gone uh, to prison. Uh, we need to find a way to reintegrate these people into society, give them a chance to be productive again. And just the racial disparity on that? That's a very deeply concerning, I know, to, uh, to 
the African American community and others who uh, who realize that uh, it's very hard to get a job uh, if you've uh, got a criminal record, and we've got to find a way to literally rehabilitate people. We're pretty good at punishing them and uh, incarcerating them, but we're not. We're, we're lousy at trying to find a way to get people back into productive society. And so that's an area where I think there's a lot of opportunity going forward for the left and the right to come together and to do some good work. And what about giving felons the right to vote again? You know, those are, that's a state issue. I think that's something we ought to talk about. Uh, yes. Senator, I, I would uh, respectfully like to disagree with you. Uh, when you mentioned that uh, perhaps the major cause of dysfunction in the Senate is because of uh, Senator Reid. Uh, what I would like your opinion on is when there have been sort of record number of filibusters in the Senate in this session, and by some measures put together more than what had happened in the Senate history so far. How can anything be done? I'll give you a small example of things, basic things like approving ambassadors for, uh, you know, 70 or some 50 to 70 ambassadorships are waiting to be just approved, and these are non-political positions. And just out of spite, the senator from, the, from your party would not agree to some basic thing like that so that the American people can be represented in foreign countries and be filibustering that or not, not getting that come to a vote. So I would like your opinion sure. on that. Well, the, you know, the United States Senate is a unique body in which uh, when it's really working well, a lot of things actually happen by unanimous consent. Uh, in other words, non-controversial legislation or nominations proceed without any vote or any, uh, well, other than uh, just the, 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 the consent that uh, people agree on uh, across the board. So what, is, what has happened is, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> in part because of the frustration that the minority party has that Senator Reid will not allow either the minority or the majority to offer legislation on the floor and get votes on that legislation, that it is uh, that the only thing you can do to protest that is basically say we're not going to cooperate uh, because otherwise uh, we will essentially be shut out of the process. And it's not just me. It's the 20, almost 27 million people I represent. Uh, I can't accept that and I won't accept that. So we do have a procedure that requires 60 votes in order to get cloture to close off uh, the debate. That's been called a filibuster. That's really not what I think of as a filibuster, but it, does, it is evidence of the, of the dysfunction. Uh, I, by the way, have always thought that if somebody wants to filibuster, they ought to be forced to filibuster. They ought to they have talk. to actually, yeah, and, and that the rest of the Senate ought to, I mean, because if the, the, one of the great secrets of Washington is that you show up in the Senate chamber during a so-called filibuster, and it's the poor Nobody's clerk there. sitting yeah. there just calling the roll over and over. Um, well, I think that's, that's a legitimate uh, argument as to whether the Senate ought to change its rules to do that. Unfortunately, instead of having that discussion and debate about the Senate rules, what we saw is the uh, Senator Reid, the majority leader, imposed what's called the nu- what we refer to as a nuclear option to basically try to pack 
the uh, District of Columbia Court of Appeals, which now they've successfully which done. Which Senator Frist, when he was Republican leader, tried to, to, to do the same thing. I mean, it's the, the majority know, loves that nuclear option. You know, what, hap what happens, Karen, is that uh, both sides, when they're frustrated with, uh, with the, the need to get 60 votes, then they, th they walk up to the edge of the precipice, and usually they look in, and then they draw back. Uh, that didn't happen this time. And you're right, Republicans were frustrated back uh, when, uh, when Republicans were in charge. But Senator Reid pulled that nuclear trigger, and now that's created a lot of the polarization in the Senate, which has resulted in the inability to process uh, nominations, even non-controversial nominations like many of these ambassadors are. Senator, uh, first of all, thank you for uh, your hard work for our state, but particularly for your point of view that part of your job is to be an advocate for Texas. And my question relates to one of our big issues that affects Texans, and that's transportation. As you well know, for the last 20 years, tens of thousands of people have moved here in order to get good jobs and keep good jobs, in, in part because we had one of the finest highway transportation systems in the United States. But as you also know today, TxDOT is effectively broke in terms of building highways, and the Federal Highway Trust Fund is about to be broke. Uh, we've had gridlock on a comprehensive transportation bill now for years. If our party is successful in taking control of the Senate, what kind of an output would you like to see with regard to transportation funding for the nation and particularly for our state? Well, let me agree with you that uh, this is a glaring problem nationally, but also here in Texas. But as usual, Texas isn't waiting for Washington and is proceeding forward with uh, this vote in November on the rainy, taking a portion of the rainy day fund to help uh, provide the for the maintenance and repair of Texas highways. Although it doesn't it doesn't meet the gap, it is a substantial a step forward. But as you know, the, the Highway Trust Fund, which is where this money comes from, has, has been proven in, in efficient, insufficient to deal with the demand, particularly in growing states like ours. And one of my frustrations when I went to Washington is realized that, you know, the grand bargain they made back in 1787, where each state gets two senators, well, that's a rotten deal for the big states because the little states gang up on the big states. And so what happens when it comes to funding, like highways, uh, Texas is a donor state. Uh, we now get back roughly 92 cents on the dollar for every uh, dollar we send to Washington. So we've got to come up with a different way to deal with this. Governor Perry and, uh, and the, the leadership here in Texas, I think, have done a good job under very difficult circumstances trying to build public-private partnerships. Uh, toll roads were something that most Texans were unfamiliar with. And uh, we've had to learn to come up with alternative ways of financing it. We need, to, we need another stream of revenue uh, to help fund the highway um, trust fund. And as you know, we just kicked this can down the road to roughly, I think, late May or early June, where we're going to have to do it again. But this, unfortunately, is symptomatic of the problem in Washington these days where we're doing tax policy, we're doing highways. We're doing how we're doing the doc fix. How we pay uh, physicians for treating Medicare patients on a herky jerky temporary basis, and creates a lot of uncertainty. Makes it difficult to plan. Certainly in the construction industry, it's hard to plan when you get a six-month extension of the highway bill. 
so we have to do better. I'm committed to doing it, but I'm particularly proud that Texas is stepping up and uh, coming to the table, even if Washington won't. But it's not a complete solution. We need to come up with a, a way to pay for our infrastructure needs, uh, and uh, I'm committed to doing that. We're on the side now, right? <laughs> oh my <Excuse> me. <laughs> it's alive. Uh, given the criticism that Congress has received as a do-nothing entity in recent years, and given the fact that it gives itself generous vacations, when you said that you did not approve of taking yet another one leading up to elections, I'm just curious, did you make any effort to persuade your colleagues in the Senate that this was not a good idea? If so, what happened? If not, why not? To to, why, you're, why you guys are leaving town leaving. and not doing any more work until after the election? I think, um, <laughs> yes, there were numerous efforts made to persuade uh, Senator Reid to stay in session and to take up uh, various pieces of legislation. I know Senator Cruz uh, had some legislation that he wanted to vote on with regard to people who've uh, gone to uh, fight for ISIL and whether they should retain their American citizenship, and that was... Uh, refused uh, to even even be debated and voted on. Um, so there's a lot of work that needs to be done. I, I don't want to be a broken record here, but the only person that schedules the Senate ca agenda is the majority leader, and that's why it makes such, makes it so important who the majority leader is. That the Speaker obviously has uh, sway in the House, but they passed 380 pieces of legislation with bipartisan votes that haven't gotten a hearing or a vote in the Senate. So I don't, I'm sort of out of, out of uh, explanation other than to say that's what the election is going to be about. But come January, you and Senator McConnell may be in a position. Have you talked at all about actually putting in, you know, I don't know, even a four-day work week? Oh, that might. <laughs> maybe have to vote more than once a day. Right. It's just, uh, you know, we don't want to overexert ourselves or anything. You know, it's, it's crazy. And, again, another, another reason why people are so disappointed in what they see happening in Washington, we need to be in session, you know, at least five days a week, and we need to process legislation. We need to actually vote, and we need to pass legislation, uh, reconcile it with the House, and get it to the president's desk. And there is a, a enormous uh, will and desire to do this. We've even had Democratic incumbent senators who now are in their first term, running for their second term, who have never had a vote on, a, on the Senate floor on a piece of legislation for which they were the principal uh, sponsor. And they're members of the majority party. How do you explain that back home? I, you know, it's hard to explain you've been a, an effective representative for your state and for your people if you can't even get the majority to allow you to vote on your own legislation. So my, my point is, I know that people blame, you know, people blame each other, and certainly, you know, Washington is where the blame game is a world-class sport. Uh, but I think people understand, too, that uh, if the Senate is going to function, if we are going to uh, produce solutions to some of these challenges that face the American people, that we have to find a way to cooperate when we can. That doesn't mean we have to sacrifice our principles, but... You know, that's why I raised the, the, the little anecdote of uh, Senator Enzi and Senator Kennedy in the 80-20 rule. Yeah. Sounds like a nice sort of little practical yardstick for how you might 
begin to get things done. And there are people who argue that if you guys were actually forced to stay around each other a little more often that you might be able to have those kinds of personal relationships of, of trust. I think, I think there are a lot of things. You know, in the old days, I'm told, that Karen, you're right, people basically moved their families to Washington and spent time together. That's just not practical. Um, and certainly, uh, I'm never going to call Washington home. Uh, Austin's my home, and Texas is my home, and I love coming home every weekend. Uh, but it is harder because of the demand for fundraising and, and just, this, uh, just the, uh, the pace uh, at which uh, that, uh, it, we operate. It makes it harder to develop those relationships, which is all the more reason why we ought to stay in session uh, at least five days a week and be forced to work together in order to advance legislation because that forces people to talk to each other even if they don't necessarily want to. Yeah, I mean, the degree to which it's no longer, I mean, these, these little you know, schoolhouse rock charts of how a bill becomes a lot. To the degree anything gets done anymore, it doesn't get done in committee. It gets written in the leader's office. Right. And just and unfortunately, when it's written in the leader's office, there's example after example uh, where it just hadn't turned out very well. Because in the committees and on the floor during the debate and the amendment process is where the problems get worked out, where people ask the hard questions and people have to respond and find solutions. Because uh, believe me, uh, believe me in, a, in a country as big as ours, and particularly in dealing with things like health care, which involve one-sixth of the economy, it's just not possible. The federal government's not competent to, to uh, try to dictate uh, uh, the policy without at least an opportunity for input and scrutiny and debate and vote. Okay. Yes. Um as a UT student and a Republican, I've been following the national Senate elections very closely. And my question is, provided you are able to achieve a majority in the Senate as well as the House, what is your top legislative priority for the next session? Well, I mentioned the budget since it seems so fundamental, and uh, we haven't done it since 2009. Uh, but. As every state, I believe, I think 49 states are required to have a balanced budget and live within their means, including Texas. And uh, it, it forces the kind of decision-making that is pretty basic to every family and very, every business and every government. That is, you know, how much money do you have and, and what your priorities are and things you'd like to do but you can't afford now and things that you want but you, you know, you'll never be able to afford. So that's pretty basic. Um, but I think... You know, we've seen the energy sector here in, in uh, Texas become such an important part of our uh, economy and job growth. And thanks to the innovation, the natural gas renaissance we've seen around the, around the country and literally around the world, this is a great opportunity uh, for us to do things like take a closer look at, uh, at uh, exporting liquefied natural gas. We know the geopolitics are particularly important when you look at Putin's hold over Ukraine and, and Europe as one of the sole or main sources of, of energy, uh, and we can change that. And uh, we also, I think, need to find a way to uh, rein in some of the over-regulation, uh, and we can do that through the legislative process on a case-by-case -case basis by saying through appropriation writers that no money shall be spent for X, Y, and Z. Uh, in an ideal world, we'd be able to engage with the president and to try to, try to uh, come up with... Uh, uh, a consensus approach to so many of these areas, but I think it's fair to say the president just has a very different view of the world and of the role of the federal government. 
We've had these debates for 200 and some odd years about the size and the role of the federal government, and particularly relative to the power and authority of the states and the power of uh, the freedom we as individuals have. And the president seems to be of the view that, uh, that all those solutions come from the federal government, and it's crowded out uh, not only individual uh, choice and freedom, but also the ability of states to try to manage their affairs in a responsible uh, sort of way. So I would say earlier that, as I said earlier, that uh, the things I feel like people are telling me that they're most concerned about is their physical security, which would include national security items like the, the war on terror and ISIL. They're worried about economic security and their jobs, which uh, primarily come, of course, from the from the private sector. And so the harder you make it to create jobs and to grow jobs, uh, the less you will have. And we've seen that happen uh, around the country. And then uh, health care security uh, strikes me as obviously the, the other area that we need to need to address. But I think hopefully we've, we've learned from this experiment that the federal government is not uh, the source of either all good ideas or solutions to all the challenges that we face that the private sector is what we need to look to, to to create jobs and grow the economy and give people a chance to pursue their dreams. I think we've got time for what, like one more question? Here I am. Okay. <laughs> Senator, uh, opinions aren't necessarily facts. And while I'm not enamored with Senator Reid, and I'm rather appalled at the senator from uh, Kentucky, um, throwing a gauntlet down six years ago saying we must do everything we can to stop this Obama from doing anything. That was said nationally, and I thought that was shameful. Uh, that said, you're one of the more personable, reasonable uh, senators and members of Congress. And, and being a Texan, your experience and knowledge of cow chips and buffalo chips and cow pies is is what I'm, what I'm really asking for Washington. What, what I'm really asking is how much of those ingredients are in the 390 bills that the House of Representatives that, that the House is sending to the Senate knowing they're going to be rejected before they before they even leave the office. Well, I believe that Texans uh, are conservative, but we are fundamentally a practical people. And we actually want to solve problems. And we have historically, um, as rough as it sometimes gets here in Austin, uh, our Texas legislature gets together every two years, sometimes in the interim, and tackles these problems and works to achieve a solution. We need to get the federal government uh, back working again. And uh, we've talked about uh, ways we can do that. I. I think that uh, on some of these issues, we really can't outsource this to other states um, because I don't want some senator from Vermont or Idaho or somewhere like that, just to use a couple of examples, to, to, to basically uh, uh, lead the way on immigration reform because this is something that we as Texans, I believe, understand better than most and we're most directly affected by the federal government's abdication of its responsibility to deal responsibly. Uh, with this uh, with this issue, so and we also have, I think, in many ways, sort of the uh, the uh, we're the laboratory of democracy and showing what kinds of policies do work. People are voting with their feet, coming to Texas from other parts of the country and around the world because we this we're providing the opportunity, not government, 
but the private sector in, in, as a result of the environment being created in part by government. So I think we, we see the pathway forward, and we just need to do more working together uh, to try to find that common ground, not sacrificing our principles, but in order to do what the American people are demanding we do, uh, which is to address the issues that uh, are providing so much uh, concern to them uh, on a security front. Well, I think that if you guys do win back the Senate, the first question at next year's Texas Tribune Festival will be about how much you guys actually do show the path forward of actually getting things done as opposed to scoring points. Um, Wish us luck. <laughs> But th I want to thank you very much for, for your time. And uh, Evan wanted me to announce, too, that lunch is a food truck extravaganza out there and that everybody should go and enjoy. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you.